Witchcraft, Wonderkammer and Weirdness. A Museum of Curiosity, Creativity and Cunning in Cornwall, Part 1. Cornwall is the furthest southwest tip of Britain, pointing like a finger out into the Atlantic. One cannot help but feel there has always been a sense of otherness to this strange and crooked land. It's not surprising in a way, for certainly up until the medieval period it was a separate country with its own kings and queens and its own language, but this sense of otherness is not just about the ways of the people or the landscape, it's something far deeper. Cornwall is also a place of paradoxes. Just as it has drawn artists and mystics and dreamers, it has also attracted those of a far more hard-headed disposition, such as the men and women who worked the quarries and the mines, and those hardened souls who sailed the seas and toiled on the land. Maybe it is this long-held relationship with the dark earth and the capricious seas which has made the Cornish what they are. But the greatest of paradoxes of Cornwall is that here in this ancient land, these two worlds are never far apart. In the world of folklore, myth and magic, they find a common ground. Miners and fishermen alike observed their taboos, vigilantly listening to auguries, and they left offerings to the mysterious bucker. Farm workers danced about the midsummer fires and around their hearths. They told the tales of the piskies and the giants who strode the land. And folks from both town and country alike widely practised the magical arts well into the 20th century. In Kerno, the other world is never far away. As the surrealist artist and occultist Ithel Cahoon, who lived in West Cornwall for many years, once said, Cornwall has an attraction for the seeker, bearing, as it does, traces of those lost countries, Leoness and Atlantis, which are lost in the depths of every mind. Cornwall has always had a curious relationship with the world of witchcraft. In 1870, the Reverend Hawker, the mystic poet and vicar of Morwenstow, observed, I do not exaggerate when I affirm that at all events my own persuasion that two-thirds of the total inhabitants of Tamar side implicitly believe in the power of Malocchio, as the Italians name it, or the evil eye. This, if anything, is probably something of an understatement regarding the popular belief in witchcraft and magic in the West. Even right up into the 20th century, but witchcraft was not just about the casting of curses. It was a complex system of beliefs and practices which permeated many levels of our lives. 
is misleading in a way to think of witchcraft as being a homogenous whole. It is a many-headed beast. Often when one looks at the apparent hard evidence of the witch trials, it's hard to identify what the witches' beliefs and practices are, or even who the witches themselves actually were. On one end of the scale we have the mythical image of the broomstick riding witch on the heath, whilst on the other we have the common or garden practitioner of charms and spells in their homes and cottages. The mainland European witch trials told of the worship of the devil at the great orgiastic Bacchanalian sabbats, while the British trial records tell of a far more low-key domestic affair. On the whole, the British witches were said to be solitary folk who, with the aid of their spirit familiars, cast their spells for the good or ill of their community. In spite of the apparent prevalence of witchcraft in Cornwall, the actual witchcraft trials were relatively thin on the ground. Just over the Tamar in Devon, there were 69 recorded trials, which is pretty much in line with the numbers recorded in the other western counties. This, of course, included the famous 1687 Biddeford Witches Trial, which Susanna Edwards, Temperance Lloyd and Mary Trembles were executed. This was the last witch execution in Britain. Cornwall, however, only had 12 recorded trials. The folklore records suggest to us that the Cornish witch was sometimes feared but often respected. In the mid-19th century, the witch Tamsin Bly had a high street practice in the respectable market town of Helston. And in Laddock, local cunning man Johnny Hooper's obituary in 1744 described him as a celebrated conjurer. In that same village in the 19th century, the Reverend Wood was respected not only as a wrestler, but also a renowned practitioner of the magical arts, and was often seen sporting his conjuring stick, carved and bedecked with magical symbols. The reason for this discrepancy between the attitude to witchcraft in Cornwall and that of the rest of the country is not clear. Andrew Snedden noticed that in the Celtic areas of the UK, the persecution of the witches is consistently much lower. One possible reason for this is that to the Celts, witchcraft is not such an unknown quantity. Most people would have had at their disposal a whole battery of counter-witchcraft charms, so there was no need to appeal to the law. But it still remains the fact that a cursory look at the witch trials reveals that it raises more questions than they answer. Looking for a unifying theory is like grasping the mist. It's also perhaps misleading just to focus on the professional practitioners of the magical arts in attempting to define and understand the nature of witchcraft. What we now describe as witchcraft was part of a commonly held system of belief and practice. From simple acts such as nailing a horseshoe onto a door for good luck or protection, to the more complex acts of casting spells in order to bring about some kind of change or to divine the future. These were common practices within the home. Underlying these practices was a common thread. 
That was the belief in the idea that behind the physical world of the senses was an unseen spirit world. And moreover, what went on in this world was somehow dependent on this unseen other world. Magic and witchcraft was nothing less than a kind of technology by which we sought to formalise this relationship between us and the spirit worlds beyond the veil. The spirit world was also a home to its own shadowy inhabitants, of which the West Country Wayside Witch knew they would do well to get on their side. This belief in the other world did not stop at our witchcraft practices. It spilled out into the religious observances and into the world of folklore. From the crying of the neck to the dancing with the os, the other world is never far away.
Another more prosaic connection which links the study of witchcraft and folklore is explored in an article by J.W. Brodie Innes. He comments, Both are profoundly interesting, but essentially different, though they overlap at many points. Perhaps we may say that folklore is the archaeology and witchcraft is the biology of this phase of human history. We study the folklore from the outside, curious only to its external aspects. The legend is a legend and no more. Its form and variance are its important points. But we study witchcraft from within, the nature and psychology of the witch, what she did and why she did it, her own view of herself and her powers and doings, what in fact it feels like to be a witch are the essentials of the study, and the truth of the stories become of paramount importance. This is a very personal and idiosyncratic Edwardian view of witchcraft and folklore. We must remember it was written when folklore studies, psychology and anthropology were all very much in their infancy. But nevertheless, it's interesting to note the idea that witchcraft and folklore could be seen as facets of an unseen whole. One must also bear in mind the mystery that the physicists have revealed to us, that the gap between the observer and the observed is not as objective as we like to believe. We're observing a continuum that we too are part of. The folkloric narrative we see around us, mirrored in the land and in our own inner worlds, and sometimes in our own daily lives. I'm writing around the time of the 1st of May. The sun is beginning to climb high in the sky. The sycamore, the bluebells and the birds have awoken. And the echo of the Padstow Obios is beginning to resound in our memories. Anyone who has ever observed the dying and raising of the os cannot help but notice there is something within us that also dies and is reborn with it. Now this is the backdrop to the story. Let us now look and see how all this in the summer of 2021 focused on a point. This sometimes overbearing presence of the inner landscape of Cornwall is something that always seems to demand some kind of response. Like the relics held sacred to the church, I've always felt that the museums are far more than just a collection of objects, but reliquaries or tokens and symbols of the land. Though these sometimes appear as random and arbitrary-seeming assemblages, I feel that through them sometimes the sense of otherness can be articulated. On the north coast of Cornwall is a venerable old museum of witchcraft and magic. Its original founder was attracted to the small village of Boss Castle by tales he heard of the old sea witches who were said to haunt the quays. One sea witch in particular, old Cecil Williamson, the founder of Boss Castle Museum, featured in his museum, was Kate the Gull Turner, who was said to hail from Penryn on the south coast of Cornwall. Penryn is an ancient maritime town. 
Tales tell that the Celts, Vikings, and even possibly the Phoenicians and Greeks came and went from these waters. Penryn was also once the home to Glasney College, which was once the great centre of learning and the ecclesiastical centre of the Southwest. Certainly, up until a couple of hundred years ago, it was a thriving port, but after a number of fits and starts, and finally the demise of the granite industry, it sunk into its present state of slumber. But something of the spirit of Cape to the Gulls still hangs around the place. As with many of the tales told by Mr Williamson, the tale of Kate the Gull was so strange it had to be true. And sure enough, about six years ago, Kate the Gull's granddaughter stepped forward at the Museum of Boss Castle to confirm Kate the Gull's existence. Apparently she lived at Halvasso, about four miles up the river Antre from Penryn. It was perhaps the folk memory of these elusive sea witches that led me to open a museum of magic and folklore on the south coast of Cornwall, just along from Penryn, in the maritime town of Falmouth. Included in the artefacts in this museum are a piece of slate carved with a witch's charm from a roof of a barn within sight of the place where Kate the Gull was said to live. A glass scrying ball from an old sea witch who once resided in Appledore in Devon, and a Phoenician figurine of the goddess Tanat, of whom it could be said was the goddess who presided over all the old sea witches. I had been involved with the Boss Castle Museum of Witchcraft and Magic for the best part of 25 years, and I've even written several books on the subject. I've watched it like a serpent twist and turn its way through time, periodically shedding its skin to assume a new guise. But in 2019 I was struck with the inspiration to form another museum on the southwest coast of Cornwall. The beginning of all summonings begins with the casting of a circle of art. The museum needs a space to manifest. So off I went in search of suitable premises. To my intense frustration, every possible option seemed to fall through. It was then that in 2020, the Covid pandemic struck. I was so lucky I did not sign a lease. Being unable to open would have ruined me. Not for the first time, I felt the hand of the unseen intercessor. I felt as if I was being looked down upon. In 2021, it looks as if the Covid restrictions are easing off for the summer. The museum plan was rekindled. Friends were opening a cafe, bar and arts venue called the Cornish Bank in a fine old granite building in the heart of Falmouth. It was indeed an old bank and beneath it were the old bank vaults. It was here 
that I took the chance of setting up a pop-up museum for three months. In mythological symbolic terms, a vault could be said to a place where treasure is held in stasis. If the treasure's gleam is not seen and its rich is not spent, then it paradoxically becomes without value and meaning. The hoard is no use to the dragon who guards it. The treasure cave becomes a prison. A vault must be opened, the dragon slain and the treasure liberated. There is something wonderfully alchemical about the transforming of these old vaults into a museum. This was the beginning of the Museum of Magic and Folklore, West Cornwall. The core of a museum is a collection. Historically, over the years, there have been many reasons for these collections coming into being. Sometimes it is the collector's desire to display their wealth or cultivated tastes. Sometimes we have seen collections as expressions of imperialism or jingoistic nationalism. Often collections are set up as a safe repository for artefacts which may be considered to be of cultural value but are lacking in material value. Thus the artefacts are in danger of disappearing from our view. This begs a number of questions, not least of all. What is it that defines an object as being an artefact of cultural value. It's a chicken and egg situation. Often it seems that an object has no value until it appears in a museum. Indeed, curators of collections are often called upon to authenticate an artefact in order to establish their cultural or monetary value. All roads seem to lead to the strange and wonderful realisation that a collection is no more or less than an emanation of the mind of the collector. The collector-curator quite literally sings the world of their curiosities and their associated narrative into the world. But the story does not end there. Once the artefacts are set on display, they're activated and brought to life by the minds of the onlookers. Thus another stage in the life cycle of an artefact is set into motion. Collections have also historically been used as a resource feeding into natural philosophy and the experimental sciences. One only has to look at the great natural history collections around the world to see this. Although these collections glory in the myth of objectivity and scientific fact, this too is indeed just a myth woven by its creators. The origins of our modern idea of the museum, however, seem to come from the Wunderkammer or the cabinets of curiosity of the 16th and 17th century. These cabinets can be both small display cases, a room or even a whole building. With the growth of both global trade and the Enlightenment, collections and displays began to emerge in Europe. These were often attempts to create encyclopedic representations of the natural world. There were vast collections of shells, minerals, flora, fauna. In addition to this came growing collections of art, curios, and the material culture of our ideas of history and objects of ethnological interest drawn from the expanding empire. St Augustine preached against the evils of curiosity. He, was see, he saw it as a distraction from God, and this indeed was incorporated into the, into the teachings of the medieval church. 
With the advent of humanism from the Renaissance and the later Reformation, this taboo against curiosity began to turn on its head. In fact, it became something to be celebrated. Post-Reformation thought seemed to point towards the fact that all the mysteries of the universe were encoded in nature and thus could be decoded by careful observation of the world. And so the cabinets of curiosity found an ideological niche. We must not, however, be seduced by modern, narrow, materialistic ideas of science. The word museum comes from the Temple of the Muses in ancient Alexandria. Thus, the museum, the senses, the intellect and the emotions can join. At its core is a space for wonder, curiosity and inspiration. was a quarry studio production made in a secret location in a quarry somewhere in west cornwall words music sounds and production steve patterson, patterson, patterson engineering patterson, editing patterson, production and additional voice dave wisdom 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 additional voice website design and brainwaves lisa wisdom if you want to support us, you can do so on patreon.com slash antiquarian adventures in meta reality. For further information, look us up on stevepattersonantiquarian.com. We look forward to joining you for further antiquarian, antiquarian adventures in meta reality.